Welcome to episode 288 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Listen, we're still going after it hard in this topic of harmartiology. And we're trying to unpack a lot of different kind of quintessential or essential elements of sin, what it means, how we process it, what it means for our daily lives on a Wednesday afternoon at two o'clock. We're going to talk about all those things. We're getting to even more. But of course, before we do that, it feels right to do a little affirming and a little denying. It's Would you true. agree? It does. It does. We, we skipped it last week and I felt like there was a affirmation and denial shaped hole in inside my heart. So I'm looking forward to getting back to it. My heart is restless until it finds rest in affirmations and denials. Yes. Yeah. That was like a beautiful, actually, that's exactly what Augustine was after. Correct. When he <laughs> yeah, that's, that's said it, those sure. words. Yeah. yeah I think that it. was like, yeah. Most people don't understand that they misappropriate they totally misquote that as like, we're restless in God. Right. No, no. And that is true. But where he started with that, that led him to the more profound quote was that, listen, if you don't have some affirmations and denials in your life on a regular basis, then you feel that hole and it is yeah. a profound hole. Yeah. It's in one of the lesser known manuscripts. <laughs> it's in the, the Arabic translation of confessions. So that the, being said, sorry, I mean, I usually, I usually ask this of you and give you the option. Like, do you want to start with the denial or do you want to start with the affirmation? Let's start with affirmations. Okay. Why don't you, why don't you go first? Okay. Yeah, this is fair. So I'm going to affirm with a little piece of software or actually a free web-based service that is like super narrow. So get ready. Most people are probably going to tune this out and that's okay. Oh, although I would encourage you to explore this. So I'm affirming with this free web-based service that actually allows you to separate any songs, vocals, and instruments. It's called MVSEP or MVSEP. And if you just go to MVSEP.com, what this allows you to do is to upload a song, maybe your favorite song, and then you can actually pull out, of course, like the vocals from the instrumental or the musical track. This is super helpful if you're a musician of any kind or if you just want to appreciate maybe some of your favorite music and just like really hear all the instrumental without like the vocal piece to kind of just see how it would sound. It's super fun. You can explore it, but it's a really great way if you're recording music or working with music or trying to understand music or practice music, if you're leading or participating in praise and worship through music of any kind, this can be a really helpful tool to kind of help you practice, hone your skill or do soloing over. It's really useful. I've used it for a long time and I thought it's about time that I affirm this very thing. So MVSEP, MVSEP.com is a way for you to have this way to separate out vocals and instruments. Somebody will find this useful, I think, because it is a really kind of cool thing. Do you remember, maybe we are too old, maybe I am too old actually. Back in the day, you used to have to buy the instrumental track yeah. to like a piece of music if you want to like sing to it, or even if you just want to study it. So this is kind of like the bootleg way to do that thing that used to actually cost you a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. I remember sometimes you would get tracks. Um, we would buy these when I was in choir. Sometimes you'd get tracks where the vocals were all on the left and the, right the, on. the music panning. was all on the right or the company was on the right. So you could pan back and forth depending on which side you wanted uh, to be practicing. If you wanted to sing, you'd pan into the vocal side or to the 
tra- um, instrumental side. Yeah, this is cool. Does it do a pretty good job? Because I feel like I feel like this is the kind of thing where like you could have a service that that does this, but does sort of like a poor job and doesn't get it good. Do you feel like it's pretty good? It's pretty good. It's enough that it impressed me. So okay. it's not perfect. But of course, you're also not paying for it. So right. you're getting kind of this. It's, it's a really nice mix, actually. And I've tested a bunch of songs because I just find it super funny. And in preparation for this very affirmation, I did try Oceans. And here's the, the great <laughs> thing about it. It removed all the junk. And by junk, I mean <laughs> the vocal the parts. <laughs> <laughs> it left those vocals out upon the water. It was really beautiful. Once you got rid of that nonsense, there was this lovely kind of all this instrumentation, that dynamics, the beauty of the actual instrumentation was pretty glorious. And I was like, wow, why is this song so good? And then I remembered it's because there's no more lyrics in it. I mean, it's a catchy song. That's, I mean, Hillsong makes catchy songs. That's part of the problem, actually. Yeah, it is. That's that's part of the problem. Actually, that's going to lead into my denial. So before we even get there, I'll ask you, what are you affirming? So this is a this is a popcorn coconut oil uh, affirmation, meaning that I have I have done this affirmation before, but let me maybe throw a different twist on it. So, in the past, I've recommended a note taking software called Obsidian Note Taking, yes, um, which can be a little bit daunting because it's not a, it's not a, a full featured word like word processor or rich text editor. It's Markdown, so unless you learn know or learn Markdown in terms of how to format stuff, it's it's a little bit counterintuitive. It works fine if all you're doing is typing notes. You don't need to know any Markdown for that. But if you want to do any sort of formatting, you have to know some Markdown. Um, and I've always struggled with it because I want to use it on my tablet because you know I like I I take a book to work right now. Most of my reading time happens on my lunch break when I'm working at the office because when I'm at home, whether I'm working at home or I'm I'm off for the day, um, when I have a break from what I'm doing, I go down and I help my wife by taking the baby for an hour so she can eat, take a shower, or wash dishes, whatever she needs to do that she can't do when she's watching the baby. And up until now, you haven't been able to use. They have a synchronization engine, so you could synchronize between computers, but the the tablet version or the mobile version didn't have that sync engine. So there was no way to synchronize. So I'm reaffirming this because they've introduced the sync engine to the mobile uh, platform now. So you can now have your Obsidian note-taking database, whatever you want to call it, and it will synchronize between all your devices. And now that I'm a little bit more familiar with it, I've started using some of the community plugins. So it's a very modular because it's an open soft, open source software. It's a very modular platform. So there's lots of cool plugins that are added that let you do things like automatically apply links uh, to other files you have or, or just different kinds of things. So it's a Fancy. free software. The synchronization, um, the synchronization, synchronization engine. That's a hard, that's a lot to say. Uh, the sync engine is also free. Uh, you do need to register for an account to do that, and your files do get stored on their server, but it's all encrypted, um, so you don't need to worry about security or anything like that. It's a it's a it's like a double-blind key encryption or something like that. Um, so yeah, check it out. It does a lot of cool stuff. Even just as a note-taking software, it's pretty, it's pretty good if you know Markdown or if you're comfortable with just regular text files. Um, if you want to make use of any of the research capabilities of like affinity graphing or any of these other kinds of things that it can do, it's a really, really powerful, uh, really powerful kind of note-taking platform. And because it's Markdown files, um, the files, they just live on your computer or they live on a server. They're very small because they're basically just text files that have some almost like HTML formatting applied to them, but they don't take up a lot of space. They're easy to transport from one 
you know, one program to another, you can import Markdown into just about any word processor that you have, and it'll, it should read it just fine. So check it out. You can get it on Obsidian. If you just search Obsidian note-taking in any search engine, you should come up with it. It's a free download. It's easy to use, and it's got a lot of really cool features, a really good search feature, a really good linking feature, um, and really the, the affinity graph that it does. I shouldn't call it an affinity graph. It's not really an affinity graph, but the graph function it does, um, it's kind of like a digital version of like that red string conspiracy board where it'll, it'll connect things together that are linked to each other. Nice. But then it repels things that are not linked together. So in the graph, the things that are only the things that share the most connections get drawn to the center and the things that are less connected to whatever the connection is get pushed out to the out to the end. We talked about this when we were talking. You know, both of us went on a little bit of a what is Zettelkasten kick the the Zettelkasten yes. note taking um, thing. It's very good for that, but you can use it for a lot of other note taking methodologies or other kinds of things. People use it for bullet journaling, which it seems to work really well for that. That's not what I'm doing, but it's it's a cool, powerful software and it's free, which is really great. Hashtag what a time to be alive. Yeah. Am I right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean all around. Yeah. Ex <laughs> wow. You just <laughs> blew this up. That's great. Yes. I mean, there's so many great things. Like, so if we just talk about note taking in terms of, uh, like listening to sermons, the things that we're yeah. reading, like this itself is like a wonderful discipline to employ besides that, the problem with note taking in like the physical form or kind of in a form where it's just like very traditional is that it doesn't often give you that like repetition, that like spacious yeah. repetition where you can come back to it or search it or bring it back into your life so you might actually like internalize it or metabolize it. This, what you're recommending here is like the, what the stopgap for that. Yeah. And I, I think that's valuable. So like everybody has something that they want to know better and this can f help us to know those things better and to make them part of who we are yeah. so that we can use them in a way that's like definitely like more applicable, more profound than just saying, I read this once and it went in and out of my mind. So yeah. I'm totally down with that. Like, I think note taking is like undervalued, right? Like and yeah. good note taking, good note taking and then application of the note taking thereafter is totally undervalued. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things I need to learn better with my note taking is not just copying down verbatim everything that's said, like distilling right. ideas out. And that's, this platform is really designed, it's designed around that Zettelkastan note-taking like platform or engine. It's really like a, it's almost like an engine or like a Wikipedia, like in your brain is what it's doing. It's externalizing the neural network of your brain into notes, but it's designed to make connections between things. And if, if you're taking notes set like verbatim notes on everything it doesn't actually work that way so i'm hoping that as i start to start to discipline myself to instead of taking verbatim notes or copying whole paragraphs out of uh, articles if i when i start to discipline myself into distilling that stuff down into summaries and analysis those kinds of things I think this will start to help um, improve some of that stuff. So check it out. It's free. It's great. It's an awesome software. And note-taking is just a good thing. There's a lot of different noting methodologies. Right on. Um, most people end up reading about one they really like, and then they kind of hack it and make it so it fits their own needs. But this thing has like plugins. It's funny you mentioned uh, spacious repetition. This has a plugin for space repetition. So if you're taking notes, you can assign your notes to be reviewed on a space repetition basis where you it'll pull them up automatically and then it'll progress make them 
less frequent unless you decide, no, I, I want to, I don't, I don't remember this note as much as I want to, so you can reset it to a lower level. So it, it'll help you progressively internalize the information. So it's, it really is a utility that can serve a bunch of functions. You could use that for memorization. Right you on. could use it. Um, one of the projects I was working on that I kind of started over and I, I need to work on again is um, taking all of the, the reform confessions and then applying links for all of the proof texts. And then it, what it does is it pulls the reform confessions that are sharing similar references in the Bible together and shows you where there's those overlaps. So there's a lot of really cool stuff you could do, you can do with it. I love it. That's so this has really... been the reformed note taking cast. <laughs> but we keep coming back to this. Like we have themes and yeah. I see them reemerge constantly in our affirmations. One of those is it's good to be proactive in recording information that you yeah. want to bring into your life beyond just again, writing down, but actually really internalize, which I know is a word that I've overused. So instead I'll use a word that I've overused more metabolize this, anything <laughs> that we can do to like bring it into the essence of your being. Like I want to do that thing because yeah. our proclivity is to push that stuff out. It is to think or give the impression that we've actually somehow absorbed it but in reality, we haven't. So I'm, I'm all about like breaking that and bringing yeah. it actually into my life and into practice. Yeah. Uh, what are you denying this week, Jesse? So I'm denying against something that is really just for the family of God. So imagine if you were, if you're listening to us, which presumably you are, that like Tony and I <laughs> are like sitting in your living room and we're calling everybody in for like a family discussion. And this is an intramural discussion, at least in my opinion. <laughs> I had the opportunity over the weekend to watch with my wife this documentary called The Jesus Music. And I'm not condoning the, the documentary. I think it's really helpful. There, but of course, there's like a variety of opinions. So you're going to hear from Amy Graham, Michael B. Smith, so many different artists. This is a documentary about contemporary Christian music and its evolution through time. And actually, I would say I thought about you a lot during this documentary, Tony, because your boys featured prominently in this. Oh, and man. by your boys, I oh, mean... Oh, man. Got to catch them all. Do you know how I mean? DC Talk. Yes, you exactly. got to catch them all. <laughs> exactly. So, like, there's extensive clips with Michael Tate and Toby Mac. I honestly, there was parts in this documentary where I thought they're going to mention Tony right now. Like, Michael Tate is going to be like, <laughs> I was in the airport recently, and this guy came with me. So it's like a really lovely and varied documentary about going all the way back to like Andre Crouch, like Christian music. And so I think it's worth watching, but I'm not going to condone it because of course there's a variety of opinions yeah. expressed in this, but it's definitely worth watching. But the denial comes in, in this particular way. And that is, I was just reminded again, how like, and this is where like the living room discussion comes into play that as Christians, we have this tendency to associate theological expression with particular genres and in some ways, this documentary is like this constant reoccurring theme and story of how like many Christians, the church writ large thought, well, clearly this genre can't be Christian. <laughs> and just how, like how that's repeated over and over and over again. And I'm particularly sensitive to that because as many people know, the, the music that I listen to is of a harder nature. And many Christians would say there's no way that screaming music can be glorifying to God. And of course, I fundamentally disagree with this. But... The fact is, there's going to become a point in my own life. I don't know, like, I don't know, someone's going to bring up like EDM Christian music and I'd be like, there's no way that like <laughs> rave style, that music can be like glorifying to God. And for all of us who are in the church, we have to push against this. We have to push against this idea of one, uh, judging something by its abuse, but secondly, by saying that somehow genre or preference in musical expression is somehow theological in its very nature. 
And some of the music I would argue that is of like a harder or metalcore, whatever you want to define it, is almost better than like contemporary, like evangelical pop music. So I'm just denying against this abuse of music and genre. Like we just all need to get over this and me as well. So I would say watch this, process this, think about the way in which you understand music and perhaps the ways that are like hidden inside us where we tend to judge the message of a music by the yeah. genre that it's expressed in. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't have anything to add to that. I mean, I don't, I don't know music well enough to know, but yeah, I, I do know there are some people that would say like, you can't have too much of a beat. You can't, yeah. You can't, right. Uh, you, yeah. you have to sing. You can't, you can't speak. Rap isn't. And I'm like, that's just, I don't know. That just seems silly. It seems overly, uh, overly constrained, but I'm sure somebody out there has a good argument. Maybe I've yeah. never heard it, but I'm sure it's out there. And I'm I'm not necessarily saying like this is a different conversation than, let's say, our brothers and sisters who would who would ascribe to like exclusive somnity, for instance. Like I'm not talking about the Lord's Day in right. particular. I'm just talking about the ability to worship in music of various kinds in yeah. various genres. Like I, I think I've been outspoken before. Like country music, for whatever reason, is not my jam. I just can't get down with that. Yeah. However. I would never say that God does not work profoundly through Christ, for through right. country music. Um, it seems odd to me that he would work through country music, even how bad I think it is. But with that said, I'm not going to ruin myself in the fact that that's just my taste. That's just a yeah. preference. Yeah. And so there, there's so much here. So like, it, again, it's, I would challenge anybody to, to watch this because I think what you'll see is this like strange reoccurring motif where in some ways, like the, the subtle thing that's underneath the surface is all these artists fighting against a culture that says, if it's not, if it doesn't sound like this, it can't be Christian. And it's like every generation has that thing. Yeah. And so it's just lovely to say like, listen, isn't God big enough? He's yeah. created all sound and sound by design of all kind, various kinds. It's really in what's being said there that, and I made the argument that, you know, you hear a turn of phrase in music, you hear a turn in the beat, you hear a drop, you hear a riff, and you're just like blown away by that. Like there's yeah. something within you that wants to worship. Like that's God doing his thing through music. So like, you know, I've said before, Marilyn Manson can think that he is somehow like coming against everything that's Christian defying God in the use of his music while all the time he's praising God because the medium that he uses is something that God himself designed. Right. And so like, if you hear that and this part of you says like, I don't appreciate his words. I can't get down with his words. What he's saying is awful. And yet the music somehow moves me. That's God. Yeah. And I think there's a lot in this documentary that leads us to that place. So yeah. we all just need to get over it. it, it me too. It's true. It's what what musical over. genre can you not get down with? I mean, not like country, but I don't feel like I would say you can't, you couldn't <laughs> worship to a country song or like you couldn't write a song. You couldn't write a song. Let's put it this way. I don't think that if you're choosing uh, musical accompaniment to your exclusive psalmody that you couldn't do something that had a country Western twang to it as your oh, accompaniment. Sure. So I, I don't, I can't think of any specific genre that I I would say somehow I don't know, somehow or like architecturally is contrary to God. Like, like that's exactly. a, an incoherent exactly. nonsense that's kind of a thing. It, like what would that even, what would that even mean if there was some arrangement of sound that was somehow contrary to God's, exactly. like contrary to God's in, like design? I did, that doesn't make any sense. 
Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, so obviously I should just turn the denial over to you. Yeah, you like, I don't even understand the question is kind of the, <laughs> kind of the place that I'm at right now. I don't even really get, uh, like, I guess like what I've heard, this comes up a lot when people are talking about like Bethel music, like Bethel yes. writing music, like, oh, well they use whole notes and whole notes like elicit an emotional response. And I'm like, do you understand anything about me? Like whole notes are not any more or less evil they're, they're not, they're not uh, like, I mean, like nothing's neutral. Right. But like, right. They're not any more or less likely to elicit a response. I guess there's some scientific documentation that like it does a particular thing in your brain, but there are all sorts of things that do things in your brain. I don't think that all of them necessarily mean like, well, that means it's out of bounds for worship. Or I've heard it say, I've heard some say like, certain certain like beats per minute actually like causes like a a response right. that's similar to like a drug like a drug endorphin rush so you shouldn't do that and I'm like okay I that I guess like maybe I guess we want to not not be high during worship but like you don't get high from listening to a, like a rock like a rock song right there's an endorphin rush but like there's also an endorphin rush when you see someone that you haven't seen for a while that you really appreciate so like those arguments seem to me to be very much built on they're, they seem to me very much like the same kind of arguments for wearing a particular kind of clothing to church. Right. Like, well, this is not dressed up enough and that's that's too dressed down. I mean, yeah, like there are cultural standards for what it means to be casual versus not casual. And, and there's a good argument to be made that maybe not casual is the way to go uh, when you're coming to church. But what particularly not casual means, for example, if you played one of those high art, high BPM rock songs that apparently causes an endorphin rush for someone in India, it would just sound like like weird noise most of the time because they have a totally different music scheme. Like they have a different set of notes. They have a different, a different aesthetic to their whole musical schema. Same in like Asian countries. It's just a very different, it's a very different kind of thing. So like that, it's not like there's some arrangement of notes. That's like the plot platonic ideal of bad music or platonic ideal of like inappropriate for worship music. So I don't know. And those people are just cranky old men on their lawns most of the time <laughs> is the way that they strike me. You got it. That's exactly what I'm saying. So that's why I'm going to turn it over to you to, for what your denial is. Yeah. So speaking of cranky old men on their lawns, that, <laughs> was, we probably, go. that was probably inappropriate. So I have been absent from social media, so I have not been up on the latest drama from James White and Owen Strahan. Um, there seem to be up to their same shenanigans, but they went after my boy Vidu this time. So James White, oh. James White, uh, has been on this kick of, I don't know, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm trying to be charitable, and I'm really struggling to figure out even how to be charitable to this. He's been on this kick of just undermining classical the, like theology proper categories. So originally, it was like the the essence essence existence distinction and are God's attributes identical with his with his existence and therefore identical with each other. We did a whole episode on that. This most recent one, he's been kind of going after the idea of inseparable operations. I think it's because, and this is speculation, um, so don't at me, but I think, and you can't at me because I'm not on social media, I think it's because he's now very tight with Owen Strahan since they're both on faculty at Grace Baptist Theological Seminary, whatever it's called, and he's been kind of coming to the defense of the EFS people, which is weird because when the EFS hit, he talked about how terrible it was and how bad it was. But he recently made some kind of comment, and I don't have it in front of me, so please, I'm not quoting it. I'm just summarizing from what I heard. That basically was saying he doesn't understand how inseparable operations 
is not just a form of modalism. And to say that just demonstrates this vast systematic historical ignorance that really is is kind of striking. And I said to someone the other day, how is it that this guy had us all fooled for so long? Mm. Because he, another recent episode of The Dividing Line, he went on this kind of long tirade about how he church teaches church history and he's been teaching church history for decades. And he's never seen anybody who's been so worked up about divine simplicity. And I'm like, are you reading? Like, are you reading the, the early church? Divine simplicity, like, is the thing like divine simplicity is like the foundation of monotheism and what hedges Trinitarianism against. So he somehow missed, I don't know, like all of the patristic era when he was studying church history. Um, and now he's saying, well, I don't understand how it's, how it's not modalism. Well, here's the very simple way that it's not modalism. The internal operations of the Trinity are divisible because there's distinct persons it's the external operations of the Trinity that are not divisible, despite the fact that they're distinct persons. So like a simple, a simple understanding of the difference between ad intra and ad extra, which in other episodes is a distinction that he actually has argued is overblown, that it, it like it's a artificial kind of scholastic distinction that I think he kind of affirms, but he thinks is maybe like people take it too far. Right. And I'm just, I'm wondering because he wrote an entire book on the Trinity and it was like held up for a lot of people as like the gold standard right. of, of like an introduction to Trinitarian theology. And I read it, I read it when it first came out and I didn't see any issues with it. I read it again recently. It's not terrible, but there is some weird kind of weird stuff in there. Like he argues, he, he makes it very much sound like it's possible that in the covenant of redemption, that maybe the father could have become the mediator instead of the son. Um, and I asked him about this directly before I got blocked by him and then, then rage quit the internet. Um, he, he wrote like an article that basically said like, yeah, there could have been a different world in which it was appropriate for the father to be the mediator instead of the son. So like now, now what do we have? We have like weird potentiality in God. So I, I guess I'm just, I'm, I'm at a little bit of a loss and I don't say this to be really snarky. I'm just at a loss at how, how it seems like the entire, reformed world like missed this like how did we all miss it so maybe this is maybe i'm denying us uh, like maybe i'm denying us that we we were so poorly catechized in what actually amounts to sort of basic trinitarian categories i mean i know it's complicated theology but it's very foundational theology we were so poorly catechized in this probably because I'm sure the restless guys have something to say about this in new Calvinism, but we were so poorly catechized in this that we totally missed how far off on some of this stuff. These guys were to say that like the son chose to be the mediator in the covenant right. of redemption. Um, totally doesn't make sense. It also doesn't really jive with uh, like EFS. The son didn't choose to do that. He chose to submit but like his buddy Owen Strahan would not be like, yeah, yeah, he could have, he could have not submitted and the father could have submitted. Like that's, it. it's, I'm trying not to be pejorative, but I like the systematic connections of this are just not there. So we've, we've held him up and I've said this before. I think like James White is an excellent uh, exegete when he's doing Greek exegetical work in the New Testament. He's a competent debater and he's good at identifying and articulating arguments. But what happens with these guys who are building these platforms and they're building, they're building a, 
uh, a brand where they have to be the expert on every single subject all the time. Right. You have people like like Wayne Grudem, who's a New Testament scholar, not a systematic theologian, whose most famous book is a systematic theology book. Right. James White, who doesn't have an earned doctorate, but is widely known as Dr. Dr. White. He is known as Dr. White, who is his studies have been predominantly in Greek New Testament and Greek exegetical work. But now he's dabbling in systematic theology and, and touting out his church history credentials because he's taught church history, you know, formally and informally. Right. Owen Strahan, who I think is in sort of like Puritan history, and he did some work with Jonathan Edwards. He's also now dabbling in like systematic theology and apologetics and history, like church history outside of that scope. So I think because these guys sort of build a brand, they have to have something to talk about and they have to be able to speak into every single situation. They have to be an expert on everything. So, I mean, I hope we don't come across that way. I think we try to stay in our lane. We try to stick with the wheelhouse that we're in. Like I'm a systematic theologian. I think most of your, your reading and your study has been kind of in that systematics theology area. I don't feel like we go off on big, long tangents about Greek exegesis too often. If we do, it's very (laughs) like, it's pretty surface level. It's pretty basic Greek one stuff. So I don't know. That was a long way for me just to say like his theology has gotten weird and kind of janky and I'm not sure what to make of it. But also, like, you don't teach an old dog new tricks, so a lot of the stuff, I think, must have been sort of simmering under the surface. Mm. And he also says his theology hasn't changed in in decades, which I know isn't true. Everybody's theology changes and develops and grows. I mean, he's a a post-mill recon now. He was like an A-mill, like, I don't know, Two Kingdoms guy kind of before. Um He's like a theonomist now. He was a a 1689 confessional guy before. So, of course, he's changed. But... He's saying like, no, this is this is the basic Trinitarian theology I've always held and always defended. And it's just, it's weird. It's just weird theology, and I'm not sure what to do with that. Would you say, is it, I mean, maybe this is going to be totally pejorative, but would you say that it's like the theological equivalent of like your weird uncle? Like at Thanksgiving? Kind of, yeah. Yeah, right? that one that comes and starts like talking yes. about like the, about like the conspiracies to like right. control the weather. Yeah. Right, yeah. Although James White actually talks about stuff like that, so... <laughs> It's not as much of an analogy as too close as you probably think. That's not true. He does think that the whole COVID, the COVID is a big, a big conspiracy. So, so there's that, but yeah. But it doesn't remove the fact that it's strange. And I think that for the longest time, somebody saw him as somebody who really influenced their faith in profound yeah. ways and like really like apologetically or otherwise helped them understand the gospel and to explain that. And to, he was like a bastion of like support for all of like the yeah. things that we want to express to both believers and unbelievers. So it is a little bit, if not shocking, like it's surprising. Right. And I think yeah. that's it's some of what you're saying is it's just surprising. And maybe we should have known better. Maybe this is an argument for the fact that we can't vouchsafe this kind of thing to somebody else. We can't broker it to somebody outside of ourselves. Really what God requires of us is try to understand in a systematic way, what he teaches in a way that's like plain where the main things are in fact, the plain things so that we can identify this kind of thing early on, or at least like there's warning flags when we listen to somebody. So I think what you're saying is like a really good warning. It strikes me as like, you're that's like very puritanical, isn't it? Like, I feel like what you're saying is like, let's just be Puritans. Yeah. I mean, but I we, guess, but we I, can laugh on the Lord's day, right? Yeah, we we can laugh on the Lord's day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just, I, I just don't, I don't know. I I've been struck by maybe it's my own, my own 
guilt survivors complex. I don't know, whatever it might be. I look back and remember at one point defending EFS, not, not really agreeing with it, but being like, yeah, it's not that bad. And actually Scott Clark just put out an article about, um, I think it's called rescuing complementarianism. And he actually had a similar experience where he, he listened to somebody articulate, uh, EFS and his was way, way, way before mine, but he listened to somebody articulate. He actually thought it was kind of a clever way to utilize the doctrine of the Trinity to sort of bolster against an argument that was being made to undercut complementarianism. And I think, I think maybe a lot of us had that similar experience where like we saw something we're like, Oh yeah, that works out pretty well. Like that's pretty clever. Even though I don't believe it, like it, it's a pretty clever argument. And I almost feel like, um, a little bit betrayed because like, obviously like James White doesn't think his theology is bad. Nobody thinks that they're wrong about a position they hold or they wouldn't hold that position. Right. But it feels like he has positioned himself as this vast subject matter expert on everything about everything related to Christianity. And because he's so active in cross-cultural apologetics and debates and things like that, especially as he's debated with Islam and Mormons, you know, the Trinity has been one of those areas that he's held up in as like, yeah, the, like like the forgotten Trinity, that's really like the gold standard book you recommended new Christians. And I'm like, after having read it recently, I don't think it actually, actually is. I don't think it's all that good. It's not bad. It's not terrible. There's some decent stuff in there. And what it's really strong in is exegetical work around the key, uh, the key Trinitarian passages, that stuff's really good. But when he starts to sort of like riff on systematic categories and and spin those out a little bit, it gets real sideways really fast. So I don't know. Maybe it's also just don't don't um, don't like don't meet your heroes, but also like also don't make idols out of your heroes because right. they all have feet of clay, and there's always going to be a. And this goes equally, if not more, for people like me and Jesse, who are even less professionals than people like James White. For sure. Like we have feet of clay too. Like there are things that I say that are wrong and that are going to be wrong. There's been times we've had to backtrack and change, you know, change what we've said and have had to say we're wrong. I just feel like we all kind of bought into a couple of these guys who really talked a good game and put on a good show. And now that we're really digging in and sort of digging below the surface of their theology, we're finding that there's a lot of rotten kind of, gangrene stuff under there that we weren't expecting. It's kind of a weird, I don't know. I'm like weird and like melancholy about it now. I should like stop talking about this. I can't stop. (laughs) Jesse, you have to save me from this body of death. (laughs) Well, I'm well equipped for that. That's for sure. That's true. I I understand what you mean. Like this sense that like it should, it makes us feel kind of gross in the inside. And yeah. Yeah. So let's change the topic, right? Speaking of being gross inside, let's talk about sin. Ooh. Ooh, that was a good one. That was like top, definitely top 10 segues. Yeah, yeah I think that was good. I'd like to thank the Academy and Will Smith for making the Academy Awards relevant again. So I'm going to get slapped for that, though. Oh, wow. I'm a little punchy. To, I don't even know what to say that. Oh, my goodness. Just a little sidetrack. What a silly thing to get like utterly canceled out of popular culture for. Like Will Smith, okay, he probably shouldn't have got up there and slapped Chris Rock in the face. But yes, let's be honest, right. who has not wanted to slap Chris Rock in the face at some point? And yeah, he shouldn't have done it. Yeah, it was immature. Yeah, whatever. But like it was a slap. Like it was it wasn't he didn't punch him, he didn't stab him in the stomach. It was a slap and a little bit of yelling. Like you can't tell me that that stuff hasn't happened 
you can't tell me Chris Rice or Chris Chris Rice Chris Ooh. Rock has never slapped someone before <laughs> or never yelled like never got in an altercation with someone. But now like Chris Chris uh, or uh, Will Smith's getting like movies canceled. He like he disappeared for like a, like a month and just like popped up in India. Like he's in India now. Oh really? Like his his marriage is falling apart. People are digging. It's like what a strange weird thing to get canceled for. I don't know. It there's a lot of sin in that, which which we're after for for the record, just to like head off any kind of very angry email. We have a strong position that there's no reason to slap Chris Rice. I don't <laughs> think there's any reason in particular that. Uh, he actually, would. he was involved in a sex scandal, so maybe he needs well, to be slapped around too. Okay, yeah, that. <laughs> I just want to slap everybody. Oh my word! This is great. All right, so let's talk about sin. I mean, this seems yeah. as good a time as any. To this is the corruption of sin. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, we've been kind of spending a little bit of time, almost like, is it fair to say uncomfortably yeah. marinating, like letting yeah. sin pool on our hearts, as it were? And it is uncomfortable. It, at least it ought to be. And so we're talking more today in this episode about like original sin. And we've been through a lot already, but when God first created humans, he explicitly warned them that if they disobeyed him, that they would die. And so forbidding them to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God said, for in the day, and the emphasis is mine, you're not going to find that italics in your scripture, but it is mine. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So did they die that day? Of course, physically, no. But after Adam and Eve disobeyed, they lived physically for many years, but on the very day that they disobeyed God, they began to suffer these natural spiritual consequences that are, I would say, worse than the physical ones. Right. And so really, that's what we're after, I think, in this episode, is like this idea of original sin, this this transition, this transmutation, this bringing about the fact that they disobeyed God, and then what happened as a consequence of that, it's commonly what we call original sin. Right. Yeah, and you know, there's there's two elements that we need to kind of discuss because this is actually something that I think a lot of people are fine with the idea of the corruption of the human nature that that Adam brought upon us being passed down. Right. And I think some of that is because it's easier to sort of comprehend how you introduce corruption into one like into the head of a generation of people and like almost genetically that corruption gets passed down like there's this image there's this understanding that like Adam had this perfect genetic makeup he had this perfect body this perfect spiritual makeup and then you you corrupt that and then of course that corruption passes down as opposed to the perfection passing down which is what would have happened otherwise so that's relatively easy for us to understand and it's relatively uncontroversial um there are very few like straight up pelagians that would say nothing happened to Adam's like constitution right. and therefore nothing was passed down except a bad example. Those people by and large just don't, they don't really, ex- I mean, I guess like the hardcore liberals might say, well, they would say Adam doesn't even exist or didn't even exist. So I don't even know what you would call them, but it is a more Pelagianizing kind of tendency to say there is no corruption in the human nature, mostly because, um, because there is no such thing as a human nature. The part that's a little harder for people to understand and therefore a little harder for people to swallow is the actual guilt of Adam's sin that is passed down from generation to generation. And both of those things have slightly different connotations, but both of them are are biblical and they're reflected in our shared confessional um, traditions. So just reading quickly from the Westminster, um, let's see, the Westminster... 
shorter catechism, question 16. It says, did all mankind fall in Adam's first transgression? It says, the covenant being made with Adam, not only for himself, but for his posterity, all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation sinned in him and fill with him in his first transgression. And then uh, question 18 says, wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate whereinto man fell? It says, the sinfulness of that estate whereinto man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of original righteousness, and the corruption of his whole nature. And then all of those things, which is commonly called original sin. Right. So, so we have this concept of original sin and most people are very comfortable and intuitively understand that the corruption of the human nature passes down from generation to generation. That's where we get a lot of language of like, well, we're broken people and like my, like I have disordered desires and like, I don't, I don't yearn for the good, the true, and the beautiful. Like that's language that people are comfortable with. It's not all that offensive. It's, it's abstracted. It's nothing I could have stopped. It's nothing I'm accountable for. It just is what it is. I'm only accountable for what I do with that. However, the guilt of Adam's sin, and even to go back one step further, the fact that we actually somehow participated in the sin of Adam, those are standards, those are our biblical doctrines that are reflected in our confessional heritage that we can't just dismiss, but they don't feel intuitive or natural. But I I think as we parse them out, we have to understand what they mean. We have to understand that that is actually what the Bible teaches. Yeah, that's right on. So like, hear me out for a second. Cause this sound like super obvious, like captain obvious style. But what we're talking about is like this transmission of sin in it's like original nature is really more about death. I, and sometimes I actually substitute those when I'm actually reading Genesis sin for death, because to claim that someone is dead is like, this is obvious of course, but hang with me. It's like the worst thing you can say about a person's right. physical health, right? Like, right. so dead is worse than gravely ill. Dead means that the inevitable deterioration has begun. Dead means that a separation from the living has taken place. So dead means that the person will never get better unless God intervenes and resurrects him from that deadness. So dead is the word the Holy Spirit uses to describe the spiritual condition of those who have never been regenerated. And so from the very beginning, we have this like line of demarcation, this watershed moment where what's happening here is not just like a minor infraction or like some kind of insidious behavior that needs to be punished. But we have, again, like we talked about last week, is this idea of like cosmic treason and the outworking of that is death. Like the minimum wage of sin is death. And it starts with like principally a spiritual death, like a complete separation from God. And that is in some ways like far worse than this idea of having like a physical death. So the effects of spiritual death, they're persuasive, pervasive, not persuasive, but I suppose they are persuasive in a sense, (laughs) like they're ubiquitous and they're irrevocable for the natural man. So spiritual death is of course like this natural consequence of disobeying God. When a person will not submit to God and the person attempts to determine for himself what is good and evil, he is living in a state of spiritual deterioration. He is separated from the living God and his only hope is if God intervenes to resurrect him. That is the state of a spiritually dead person. That is our natural state. So I love Proverbs 13, 15, which I almost feel like God gave us as like this kind of like weird, subtle humor because it says, the way of transgressors is hard. Like, is there ever a greater yeah. understatement in scripture? Like the way of transgressors is hard. <laughs> like there is terror in sin or 
the terror is in sin itself. And so a soul in a state of sin may possess everything, but it enjoys nothing. Yeah. And so like we see this like happen before our eyes, almost as like cataclysmic, like this awful, like when you read Genesis three, like you're almost like, don't do it. Like it's, it's like that horror movie that you watch where like somebody, I don't know, is like being called away or is like to go outside or go into like the dark place or like, and you just want to be like, is this not obvious that you shouldn't do this thing that's going to result in great terror, great cataclysmic catastrophe. And so you see this like unfold before us and I wish that were different, but, but I meant, like you said, like I am, I have inherited this very thing in my essential nature. And that's because like the originality of the sin. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, one thing that I think most people would find counterintuitive about this, um, that our confessions actually spell out really well. And I'm saying our confessions, but I'm really mostly talking about the Westminster. The others don't speak as specifically on this in my, my read, but they, they aren't inconsistent with this. But in chapter six of the Westminster um, confession of faith, which is titled of the fall of man of sin and of the punishment thereof, um, starting in um, verse three, it says they being the root of all mankind. So they being Adam and Eve, the guilt of this sin was imputed. So, so the guilt of the sin was imputed to all mankind because they are the root of all mankind. And here's right. where I think it's counterintuitive is we tend to think of the guilt of sin and the corruption of sin as like dual consequences that come out of the fall. And we're on board with the, the consequence of corruption. We're not so much on board usually with the consequence of guilt. But then if you keep reading in that same section, the guilt of this sin was imputed semicolon, right? So it's a, new but related thought, and the same death in sin and corruption in nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation. From this original corruption, this is starting in section four, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to do evil, to do do precede all actual transgressions. So we're going to talk about the scope of sin and what it does to us now next week. But what you read in, in that third section there is that the guilt of sin is imputed right. and the same death in sin. So guilt and death, like you're saying, those are related concepts. But the corruption of the nature, the corruption of, of human nature flows out of the imputation of guilt, not separately from it. Right on. So, so the corruption is not, um, sometimes we think of it, and I think I've probably even explained it this way, that there's a natural consequence of, of departing from God's way, and that's kind of like the corruption of sin, and then there's a forensic or a legal consequence of departing from God's way, and that's, the, that's guilt. But in reality, it's like the, conce- the natural consequence of sin is partially the punishment that is a result of the, um, the legal consequence. Exactly. So when when God says when you eat of it in that day you shall surely die he's not saying hey that fig is poison so don't eat it or it's going to kill you. We talked exactly. about that last week. Like this is just a fig. It's not a poison fig. It wasn't gross, it wasn't rotten, it didn't make them physically ill. There was nothing about it that was was wicked in and of itself except that it was forbidden for God, by God. And so there was no natural corruption that came from that. Whereas if I pick up a, if I find a dead raccoon on the side of the road, that's all rotten and I eat it, there's going to be some natural corruption that comes about from eating rotten meat, right? My, right. I'm going to have a naturally corrupt issue, right? right? That's not what's happening in the Genesis text, right? Nothing happens to them in terms of corruption until God 
uh, until God prescribes that. So that that's something that I think when we look at the text, we have to parse that out carefully. It's not as though they were immediately aware of their of their nakedness and shame, but that's part of what the fruit does. That's part of the nature of the fruit itself to make one wise, right? We talked about that to give them observational wisdom. So that's a that's an outcome of the of the fall. But the corruption of the fall is related to and flows out of the guilt, which is pronounced by God in the curses of the fall. We'll talk about the specific, I know we said we we're going to talk about it this week, but we're going to run out of time. We'll talk about the specific curses and what they mean and how they affect us now, how they trickle down to us. But the curses of the fall change the human nature. Those are the forensic legal proclamations of what is going to be happened. You are, God finds the people guilty and the right, sentence exactly. is now, here is the outcome. Adam, you are guilty because you did this thing. Now you shall work the work the ground, but it will not yield its fruit to you. To the serpent, because you did this thing on your belly, you should crawl, right? We don't have a good reason to think that the serpent didn't crawl on its belly before, but there's some kind of intensification of it, right? Eve, because you did this thing, now I will increase your pain in childbearing. So those are all corruptions of the human nature that are the 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 sentence imposed upon them because of the legal guilt that's incurred by their disobedience and the judgment of God, the verdict that God delivers, the guilty verdict that God delivers. And so it would not be just, right? We've talked a lot about how God has to be both just and the justifier. Well, it would not be just for God to impose the sentence on us without also the guilt being transmitted. Right. And now there's a lot of complicated theology and, and philosophy and ethics that explain why that might be okay. I don't think we need to get in all, into all of that. But the fact of the matter is, we know that the guilt of sin is imputed to us because the natural consequences being the corruption of sin are also imputed to us or we inherit them because that there's a, there's a cause and effect relationship. If you don't have the effect or if you have the effect, you have to have the cause right. and the cause of the corruption, the cause of the natural consequences is not some, um, it's not some necessary relationship between fruit and corruption of nature. It's a necessary relationship between breaking God's covenant, meriting his curse, and then the curse being imposed and working itself out in reality. Right on. I like that because I think that there's so much in us that even as Christians that we some for some reason tend to bifurcate this idea that like, well, I am willing to understand and even like appropriate this idea that somehow I am inheriting the sin of Adam. I just don't like this idea of guilt, like the guilt right. of Adam, because like I want, I, I'm willing to say like, I am compromised, but I'm not guilty. Like I'm not guilty for something that I did not commit. That is something I did not participate in. And yet what God is saying is like, it's the guilt itself that transmission is like the essential element of. So like another way to say that would be, I think that, you know, when we think about the ways in which we understand people and ourselves that guilt mediates so much more than we actually understand Yeah, that like in our actual world, like the way that we feel about others, like our spouses, our friends, our, our, ourself, there is a guilt element involved in so many things. And in part, this is because of this original sin. It's the guilt itself that, like you said, establishes the fact that punishment is justified. Right. So if you just say like, well, I understand I'm, I'm like a sinner condemned, but I don't feel guilty. That's a problem because you must be guilty, like you're saying. Right. In other words, to have a punishment rightly justified on your behalf. 
So guilt is like this thing that we can't avoid. We might try to run from it and we're, we have a proclivity to actually run away from it because it's uncomfortable to accept guilt, especially guilt that we feel is not our own. But that's what God is saying here. That like, it's almost better to say like guilt is a progenitor of everything else we understand about original sin rather than the other way around. Yeah. And so it's just uncomfortable, right? It feels icky. It feels gross. But especially like to inherit it from in a, in a way that you would say like, well, this has nothing to do with me, but it actually has everything to do with us. It is the thing. It is like the blood that curses through our veins. It is like the genetics. It is the thing that we would do over and over and over again. It's just that our federal head represented in Adam did the very thing that we would do over and over again if given this ourselves, the opportunity to represent all of mankind. So th- this is like where, again, I think we talked about this, maybe ad nauseum. So perhaps people are tired of hearing this, but I'm going to say it again for all those in the back. Like the the Lutherans in their emphasis get the, a lot of this right. This distinction between like law and gospel to have the law in front of us saying like, you are guilty, you are guilty. You are always guilty. You are in every way guilty. You yourselves are guilty, both by way of like your genetic composition and also by every decision that you've made aside from the fact that you thought you could somehow separate yourself or be derivative from that genetic composition, you are guilty. And then this makes the gospel all the more glorious because it comes and rescues us wholeheartedly and completely and ubiquitously from this massive corruption. But not just corruption, because corruption seems like you can separate yourself from the fact that like, oh no, I was born corrupted. This is really awful. It has nothing to do with me. You are guilty. Right. Like you stand before the tribunal and it always says to you, you deserve punishment. Yeah. So who will rescue us? I'm going to quote you. Who rescues from this body of death? <laughs> it is only God himself. But that body of death is really a body of guilt, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's hard for us too, because we think, we think in terms of Western categories of justice. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a very right. individualistic um, concept of guilt and justice. And I, I'm not a big fan of like systemic systemic sin. Obviously, I'm not a fan of systemic sin. I'm not a fan of the concept of systemic sin or corporate sin. I think for the most part, sin only makes sense. Corporate sin or systemic sin only really makes sense in the context of a federal headship where that sin has some sort of vehicle for the transmission. But the fact of the matter is that the guilt of the sin is transmitted to us because we are in Adam. Now, whether that's right. in a like a substantial realist sense, right? Some people would argue that like substance-wise, our substance comes from Adam. And so we were present, somehow present and active within Adam himself when he sinned, and therefore we somehow were participatory in that sin. I'm not sure I want to go that direction. I know that that's a common way to go in sort of like the patristic era. I think more generally speaking, there is this concept of like a public person. Um, that's part of why what's going on with Russia and Ukraine is so dangerous is because when when Vladimir Putin, Putin, Putin as the president of the country decides to invade Ukraine and commit really atrocious things. Um, in some sense, the Ukraine or the, the Russian people are culpable and are participatory in that sin, right? They're participating in that. Um, sure. There are some in the country who would, would not, you know, would, would do otherwise. Um, and, and yes, so we can say that those people maybe are not, 
um, are not culpable because if they had the ability to stop it or the ability to withdraw themselves, they would. But there are lots of people in the country and, and at a bare minimum, I mean, I guess I don't know for sure how all the politics work and I, I get the impression it wouldn't be as simple as voting him out of the office, but at least ostensibly it's a, it's a, an elected, you know, an elected position and there are mechanisms. Um, there are the oligarchs could remove him if they so choose. There are ways that that could be done. The military could remove him. I mean, there's, there's ways that the nation as a whole could remove this wicked leader from his, from his place of power and they have not done so. And so even the failure to prevent it gives this sort of sense that the whole nation, because Putin is a representative person, he's a public person for them, it gives this sense that they also are participating in this war. There's a reason we don't say that Vladimir Putin went to war with Ukraine, and we say that Russia invaded Ukraine. It's the same concept as when we talk about like my soccer team, when I'm talking about like Although for me, it's that's got my name on it. But like when I'm talking about like <laughs> Arsenal, like the, the Gunners in, in England, right? I say, well, that's my team. Well, I've never met anyone on the team. I've never played on that team. I've never done anything except watch them on TV. But I still kind of think of it as like my team. And when they right. win, I say, yeah, well, like we won. We won that right. game. We won that match. Um, we understand this concept of a representative or public person. And we actually... It's not just a quirk of language when we say like we are, we won that match, we participate in the victory, or we participate in the loss of that. That might be an overstretched analogy, but there's something similar going on in that Adam is our person, he's our team, he's our representative, he's our public person, and so we, in some sense, participate in that. Now, whether that means like we've talked about a little bit in the past, whether that means that we actually would have participated in that had we been alive or whether it, 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 we wouldn't have, that's almost an irrelevant question. Because the, as, as a public person, as our representative person, he faithfully represents us. He faithfully right. articulates us. And so in him, in union with him, we have sinned, and now we are corrupted by that sin. We're corrupted by the, the natural and legal consequences of that sin. So also, this is where the gospel comes in. So also when we are in Christ, we are uncorrupted. We are risen incorruptible. We are risen imperishable. We are risen immortal in union with Christ and his righteousness. Now all of the legal benefits and rewards of his now become ours. So it, it really is important. And this is where I think Reformed theology is really strong, is we understand this first, second Adam uh, eschatology, this first, second Adam soteriology that is so prominent in Paul's writing. And, and I think the Reformed tradition really gets it right. That is key, but it, it comes with this little caveat. You can't reject the imputation of guilt if you're also not willing to reject the imputation of righteousness. So the right. liberals who want to say there is no such thing as the imputation of guilt, they're being consistent when they also say, so there's also no such thing as the imputation of, of righteousness. Double right. imputation doesn't work for them, and they're fine with that. But we have to get to the point where we understand, just because I wasn't there and didn't actually do it, doesn't mean that my in my Western sensibilities that I can't possibly be guilty of it, that that guilt can't somehow trickle down to me. Another way to think of it would be like if my wife went out and got a, got a credit card and spent a bunch of money on that credit card, because of our legal union with each other, our covenant union with each other, I am responsible for that debt. I'm responsible for that. Even though I didn't sign the credit card, I'm still responsible for that because it's a shared debt that accumulates to our 
our covenant unit. It's a very similar dynamic that's going on with Adam and, and his posterity. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, you could even say like it, there's an argument or metaphor from like the greater to the lesser. So like, so let's say you have kids and you send your kindergartner off to a, I don't know, like a birthday party at one of their friends. And you might say to them like, listen, like you need to behave well because in behaving well, like you're representing our family. Right. So when you do something, it reflects either greatly or poorly on our name. And so we're like, we understand these things. It's very common for us to appreciate them. So you're right on. I think that again, that's like helpful in us trying to process all of what this means. So, I mean, I'd like to say again, that this is like the definitive episode on what it means to understand guilt and harmatiology and sinfulness. But I'm sure somebody will say like, there's so much more that can be said. And I would say, is there though? Cause I feel like Tony and I have covered it all. No. No, I haven't. There's a lot more to be said, which is part of why we're coming back next week to say more about the subject. But I just think we have to, like I said, we have to take sin seriously. That's been the theme of these episodes. And taking it seriously in some ways means not not making an excuse for the guilt that is ours and Adam. Yeah, right. Right? If if we want to take sin seriously, we also have to take seriously that we are born as guilty parties. We're born as those who are sold to sin and dead in trespasses. You know, it, it, Paul is very clear. Like this is a nature a nature problem. It's not just it a legal problem. It's also a nature problem. But that nature problem has to come from somewhere. There yeah. has to be a, a a grounding logically from where that comes from, and it comes from the fact that the guilt of Adam, which rendered him corrupt, also renders us corrupt because we also bear that guilt. Yes, and you know, I like what you said there because, like, I think this might be helpful to at least for us to like kind of throw out there. There's something we said for going after like the symptoms of our sin. So we've, you know, routinely quoted John Owen, this idea of like mortify sin or or sin will be mortifying you. And of course, all that is true. I, I think that what's behind that though, is this idea of that we're not actually after the symptom. What we want to do is pluck like the stock in the root. And so like part of this process of processing sin is understanding that in our nature, it is prevalent and its expression in our own lives has to come with what's behind the things that we do. So try to understand why it is, especially if you, you like everybody else, fall into some kind of like a begrudging, almost like unavoidable, so to speak, habit of habitual sin. The question should be like, what can I do? Not, not what can I do to change my behavior, but what is at the root of that very behavior? And so we're after that here, that God can in his yeah. great majesty and his great power by the Holy spirit in your life, try to pluck out that very thing. It doesn't mean that we achieve perfection, but it means that we should be about again, the thing that is like deeply rooted and embedded in how we behave, not the behavior itself. Yeah. So asking why it is that I'm seem to like want to fall in this particular kind of, you know, temptation or this habit or some kind of sin itself we need to be after that thing. I, I think that in and of itself is kind of distinct to like our form perspective to try to get after the root. So as we like kind of close this down, here's what I would say. We're going to talk more about this. That's for sure. Because we've done a lot of definitive work here, but there's more yet to be done. So if I can recommend a couple things to read, like if you are the kind of keener that wants to get after a lot of things to read before we talk about this again, <laughs> here's what you can do. I would recommend human nature in his full forward state by Thomas Boston 
or Alive and Dead by J.C. Ryle, who has an epic beard. Both of those are like, I think, really great works trying to get after, again, like the root of the sin nature, but also understand how it is that we process it, how we understand what God calls us to in sanctification. That is like the constant putting in death of the things, these things, while at the same time recognizing that we're not going to achieve perfection in this life. Those yeah. are really, 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 really good works. You can also go back to Bondage of the Will by Martin Luther. That's also really good. That would make our Lutherans and residents really happy that you might take <laughs> those works, right? Uh, there's so many great things that you can read, but uh, if you do anything between now and the next time that you jump into your car and listen to Tony and I talk, I would encourage you to try to process by the influence and the enlightening of the Holy Spirit why it is that you perform certain acts of sin, like why it is that these things seem particularly tempting to you. Yeah, That is really what I think God wants us to get after here. And we're when we're talking about all of this in terms of like sin and, uh, you know, what occurs with Adam and Eve, we're after what is the root. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Well, Jesse, I'm excited to be wrapping up this series next week because just it's kind of a bummer. It's just a bummer. <laughs> sin is a bummer. And uh, we're getting, you know, that we've, we've gotten to some law issues. We're going to start flipping over into some gospel issues, which is great. Ooh, the um, gospel. So we'll be talking about covenants. We'll be talking about the person of the mediator. And then we'll be talking about soteriology and all that fun stuff. But until we do, Jesse. Oh, no, 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 no. Wait, 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 wait. Oh, Jesse's got more. You're, you're, no, no, no. You're, you're about to end it. I felt like this, this sensation that it was drawing to a close. I, I, I made a commitment and that was, I just want to throw something out there. And that is that, uh, so we have this Telegram chat. Telegram oh, yes. is a messaging app, right? Yes. And we were doing this massive experiment. Where we're saying, what if we invited everybody that was interested into this massive, loving, amazing conversation among like-minded brothers and sisters? And one of the things that's evolved out of that, I got to stop using the word evolves, right? Because that like, <laughs> carries like a weird connotation. One of the things that's come out of that is that uh, some have said, you know, wouldn't it be great if we kind of got together and just chatted like informally about our lives and about Reformed theology and about what's being presented in the podcast. And so our, our brother Vincent has put forward this idea of what if we use this app called Clubhouse? This is a social audio application that basically is like a giant conference call. And yeah. he's taken on his on himself and his own volition to say, why don't we introduce a time? Uh, to gather together those who are listening, just talk. And that actually happened just in this past day. Yeah. And so I'm going to encourage everybody. I think he's going to continue to post opportunities for us to talk just to go out there and to join in. And it's just an opportunity to have a massive conference call with the other brothers and sisters who are processing. So before you want, you ended there, I wanted to say like, <laughs> go and look for the opportunity. How do people actually find this telegram thread or this giant conversation that's going on? Yeah, you can join it. You just point your browser at the letter t.me slash Reform Brotherhood. Uh, if you are not a member of Telegram, if you don't have that app, it should take you to instructions for how to get an account and download it. Uh, and if you are, then it should jump you right into the channel. Um, otherwise, you can always reach out to me um, by email at info.reformbrotherhood, and we can figure out how to get you in there if you can't figure that out. But it's just t.me slash Reform Brotherhood. We do have a channel 
uh, which is a broadcast thing that I realized that I've been using wrong. <laughs> so, uh, so don't, don't <laughs> worry about joining that. Just join the group. If you really don't want to be in a conversation, but you still want to get announcements, it's you okay. can join the channel. It's just broadcast, but that just don't, don't do that. Just join the, just join the, the group. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, it is a lot of fun. And I'll say this by way of personal testimony. I had the opportunity to join in this conversation last evening and meet some delightful brothers in Christ. And the fact of the matter is, hashtag, it's a glorious time to be alive. The fact that I'm getting to meet and have some conversation, just chats like informally and lovingly with those who are concerned with the same things we are, which is to one, understand God more fully as best that we can, and two, to worship him more effectively, and then three, to carry that out in our lives by way of evangelistic testimony is just like an amazing thing. I can't, I, th- I don't think you can underestimate the power of just having great conversation with those who are part of the family of God who you didn't know except for like this opportunity to engage with them. So the family is everywhere, loved ones. And I promise this is the last thing I'll say. I think there might be among some this conception that like this idea of the podcast and the from brotherhood belongs to me and Tony. We don't yeah. feel that way at all. Like, yeah, in fact, this not. is just like a foil for more conversation among those who are all over the actual globe who are trying to understand and reform theology and then to live it out in a way that is pragmatic, practical, and glorifying to God. So that's what we're after. So if there's any part of you that thinks that this is a thing that we do for you as like entertainment purposes or just to be to spur some kind of like conversation or to be more thoughtful. It's not that at all. It's actually this idea of bringing together the people of God for the worship of God and the ministry of God in a way that glorifies God. That's what we're after. So I'm so thankful to so many who have said like, you know what, maybe we should like use this app that allows us to connect. I would say go for that a hundred times. Let's do it. Nice. Yeah. Well, since Jesse interrupted me, I'll just get back to what I was doing. So, (laughs) Jesse, until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood.